Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. I love to find people doing surprising things to bring peace to the planet, and the work of today's Spirit in Action guest is a very special case of that. You see, Zachary Moon was raised in a thoroughly pacifist environment, very much embraced that personally, and yet felt led to become a chaplain in the U.S. Marines. Instead of accepting an us-and-them divide, Zachary followed a calling to care for the whole person without prejudice or prejudging, and looks for ways to care for those who have performed military service as they return to the civilian world. He's just released a book, Coming Home, which I think you'll find powerful and inspirational, as Zachary Moon now joins us in person before a small audience here at the 2015 Friends General Conference gathering. Zachary, thanks so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. It's great to be here with you, Mark. Thank you. And to recap, folks, we're on the campus of Western Carolina University, Cullowhee, North Carolina. And the name of the book with the subtitle is Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families. Why did you write this book? Wasn't there something out there for this already? Well, that was one of the reasons why I ended up writing it. I had been doing consulting work with congregations and denominations around these issues uh, for a number of years. Folks at those presentations uh, continue to ask, what are the best books or other materials or resources out there that we can take home to our congregations? And I found that the the few resources that were out there, unfortunately, were perpetuating some of the kind of problems I saw in how we were going about engaging this, uh, namely around really continuing to talk about these issues in an us-them kind of divide uh, between civilians and veterans and military families. And I really wanted to see a resource out there that was was really acknowledging the we-ness of this work, that we as a community are not a community of civilians over here and veterans over there, but that many congregations, uh, in fact, all congregations that I've ever interacted with have got veterans and military families in them. So engaging with the topic of military service and the process of coming home is really an, an opportunity for us to do this work in community. Are you really saying that it's not enough to say to someone, thank you for your service? Yes. How I would respond to that, Mark, I appreciate in one way that I think as a society we have perhaps in a way learned from the mistakes in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, that the ways in which uh, some veterans were treated in the process of their homecoming was pretty devastating. In some ways, I see the thank you for your service kind of response these days, in some ways, as being a sort of corrective to the historical missteps. And unfortunately, I would say that in some ways, it still falls into some of sort of empty or superficial ways that folks seek to show their support, uh, which I think is genuine and sincere. and, And that's the part of it that I appreciate. 
but it can also be a way in which we hold each other at arm's length. That I can thank you for something in a in a kind of blanket statement, blanket gratitude kind of way. But there's a way in which that can also sort of indicate to you that I actually don't want to have more of a conversation with you. And part of the work of this book is how do we open the kind of conversations with one another that allow for the deeper conversation to take place. And if thank you for your service is a way to either explicitly or implicitly foreclose that deeper conversation, that's where I really think we get ourselves into trouble. But as I say, I think behind those gestures really are a sincere hope to show a sense of gratitude and acknowledgement for military service. And I think most of the service members that I know appreciate it at that level, but also are very much longing to be in deeper and more authentic relationships with folks that allow for us to do more than just say thank you, but to really hear the stories. I think there's a lot of people on maybe both sides of support of war they don't realize that we don't have to make enemies of one another. I was standing on a peace corner. I'm part of a monthly peace stand in Eau Claire. started out being called the Iraq Moratorium Stand. I'm standing there, and, and by the way, our group has included, uh, there's a couple of the very regulars whose adult kids have been part of the military, and they're standing against the war because of support of their kids, and sometimes the kids, when they were home, they've been standing with them too. So... There's not really adversarial to military there, but one time I had a guy drive by. He stops, he looks at his signs, and he yells something provocative to me. I served in blah, 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 you didn't. My response to him, I looked at him, and he only had a moment. He said, a red light just about to go. I said, well, thank you for your service. He got, took a breath, got ready to yell back at me, and he realized, wait a minute, he didn't yell back that I was some baby killer or you know whatever he expected that I would be doing. How much do you find that kind of mentality is present, particularly in the circles in which we both travel, Quaker circles? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great example of how we have an opportunity in some ways to kind of disrupt the dominant sort of cultural narratives that are so operative in our society right now that seem to suppose that there are clear sides of this one against the other. And that kind of antagonism really is a part of what keeps us out of relationship all too often. What I worry for us when I see the good kind of community organizing and activism work against the war is that all too often I feel that we're reducing ourselves to a slogan that can fit on a cardboard sign that we can hold on the street corner or in the march. And unfortunately, I think the ways that those statements often are presented are so really necessarily kind of reduce a very complex issue to a simple statement, something that can, you know, can fit on a sign or a bumper sticker or on a button. And that's not always a great way to try to begin a conversation. So what I heard, Mark, in your story was a sort of unlikely opportunity to have a conversation, even just in a moment with somebody passing by. And I think what's moving about that is you were willing to kind of step beyond in the response that you had for him, you know, maybe a different kind of message and, and a message that that although the context of that encounter didn't allow for more of a conversation, at least indicated to him that you had more to say and maybe more to hear from him in that conversation. And when we, as I say, when we reduce our opinions or our beliefs or our values, you know, just to these kind of, you know, simple reduced statements, 
I think all too often that's received as a kind of hard and fast line in the sand that doesn't allow for a real kind of conversation to take place. And as your story indicates, you know, that is what's often the reaction that we get are more sort of, you know, maybe it should indicate something to us about the ways that we're communicating when the response comes with that kind of vitriol, that kind of intensity, that kind of passion, um, that kind of defensiveness that we're really contributing to that in some ways. And so, you know, part of my hope for this book and part of my hope for the way that this kind of work and this ministry can move forward is that this work would allow us to actually create some spaces where we're not just reduced to those kind of simple, hard and fast statements, but that we really have an opportunity to listen to each other more deeply. And I would say care for each other more as persons than as political soundbites. I want to share with you another experience I had, get your feedback on this. One of the things that you point out in the book is there's a very large number of people in the military who are there for reasons of integrity, that that's extremely important to them. There's other people, I understand, who are there because I need a job or I need to get into college. I had a girlfriend along the way who went in the military because she knew that was the only way she was going to be able to afford college and her family and so on. So I've been a war tax resistor since 1982. I think it's totally morally reprehensible that over half of our federal income tax dollar goes to the military. There's no way that that should be happening, in my opinion. And that it's a moral issue for me. I really do believe what Jesus says about we can't serve two masters and we're trying to serve one that doesn't serve us. So that's my point of view. As part of the Quaker meeting, we were standing outside IRS office, which also was with the military recruiting office, And so amongst the people going by was a recruiter, and one of the other members of our group, I saw her hand him one of our leaflets, he was in uniform, and he was walking along, and I was further along, so I saw his progress, and he's looking at that, and he slows down, and he just shakes his head, gives a sigh, and he turns and goes back to her, and I followed, listening in, and what he said basically says, you know, I'm completely in support of free speech, including your free speech, even though your ideas are very different than mine, I will even die in the service of that free speech. But I just have to question your naivete because you're handing this to me, and from your point of view, I'm probably one of the enemies. And I really admired his integrity in saying that. He was not abusive at all. He was attempting to say, really, what what's this about? We proceeded to have a conversation, uh, first with the other person, and then largely him and me. And he went away saying, you've raised some really good points. I'm going to look at them, and we'll, we'll do this. And it was so wonderful to have him engage in the conversation respectfully and with complete integrity, uh, in spite of the fact that we might have been considered to be enemies. So what's your experience working with the military as a chaplain in the U.S. Army? Is your experience that those kind of dialogues are possible on that side as well as perhaps the well-intentioned, fuzzy-headed liberals? Uh, so, Mark, I work for the United States Navy and serve with the Marines. I think in response to— I really knew that, I, though, Zachary. I know you I did. did. Okay. I know you did. You just wanted to recruit me over to the, the boys in the Army. So, Mark, that's again, I really appreciate that story, and, and I appreciate the way in which you respectfully honor the integrity of that service member and the way that he returned to that conversation and represented himself well, it sounds like, and also was willing to listen to your perspective and folks that you were with as well. I, I would say I have heard that a form of that message again and again with service members that I serve alongside, that there is a, a deep sense of connection to 
service to country and service to community and even service to folks who are against the war effort. And I think uh, what's important for us going forward in terms of thinking about, you know, what what com- different communities do by way of responding to veterans and, and to military families is to really remember the complexity of this, that ways in which we might sort of presuppose the political commitments or religious beliefs and values of people who serve in uniform we really make a, a misstep if we kind of assume that we know what we'll get by way of response. What I appreciate and how that service member responded was to say that, you know, part of what he was doing in serving this country was really serving the kind of opportunities to have those encounters going forward. And also a sense of concern and frustration that maybe you all there with the peace demonstration had come to see him as being an enemy. And I'll share with you that I think, you know, for me in my own journey in this and being raised in the Religious Society of Friends, Quakers, in a very liberal city in Berkeley, California, so both surrounded by a liberal Quaker community and then also surrounded by a very liberal neighborhood and city of Berkeley, one that, you know, had very strong legacies around anti-war activism, that I would say there were many ways in which I both consciously and unconsciously saw people in the military as being the sort of furthest folks in terms of worldview to what I held. And I don't know if I would have ever called them enemies, but I certainly would have seen them in a kind of adversarial role. But I came to really see that as being a limitation, that I realized that I didn't know enough people in the military to really make those kinds of judgments and make those kinds of assumptions. And what I have found first serving as a chaplain in the VA hospital system, and then later as a commissioned military chaplain and serving with Marines now for the last four years, is that many of my very basically informed assumptions about who is in the military and why people serve in the military were really off base. They were really off center. And and what I've found is just a real vast spectrum of reasons why people join, what is particularly compelling to them about the recruiting messages that they hear, you know, prior to joining. Sometimes we call this an all-volunteer force. I've quit using that terminology, and I I talk about this as being an all-recruited force because I think the dynamics of that are really different, and it's important for us to acknowledge how powerful the apparatus of military recruitment is in this and how many of our tax dollars, uh, you mentioned earlier, Mark, about how much of our tax dollars go, you know, to really funding these efforts. And a lot of our tax dollars are going to recruitment materials that really make this kind of military force possible. But I think it's a great place to start in terms of the conversation between folks here back home to really ask the questions in a very open-ended kind of way what was it that motivated you to join and not assume that we know the answers to that, that the reasons may have been regarding economics, they may have been regarding educational opportunities, it may have had to do with trying to put some distance between you and a family situation that wasn't healthy. And I would say all of the folks that I've talked to had a sense that they were going to have an opportunity to serve their country and serve their community in ways that would be dignified, if not heroic, and that there was something captivating to them about the opportunity to serve. We're going to get to the content of Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families by Zachary Moon very shortly, but I still have to pursue a couple things with you, Zachary. One of them is it does not strike me as intuitive that someone from a peace church and from the depths of liberal bastionhood like Berkeley is going to end up connecting up with the Marines. 
there's something about that path that doesn't seem intuitive, but I know you have a very clear logic that's true to spirit that led you there. Could you map out that course for us? Yeah, Mark, there's some really interesting words there, both sort of intuitive and logic. And I would say that the way I got from here to there, I don't know if I would use either of those two words. Uh, Probably the first word I would use would be that this was the most recent and overwhelming example of how God working in my life continues to be full of surprises that this work uh, throughout has been really in many ways hard for me as a child of the Religious Society of Friends, a historic peace church with such a strong pacifist tradition. It's difficult for me to make sense of it in a, in a real kind of a logical or reasonable kind of way. And nevertheless, I continue to be reminded and returned to what has been the real center of this work for me, which is that God can do incredible things through us and between us when we make ourselves available to be in relationship. And the extent of that, unfortunately, is sometimes really bound by our willingness to take risks. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we remain and kind of continue to just operate within communities that we're very familiar with, that we all seemingly share a similar worldview or set of beliefs, a set of behaviors, voting record, you know, sort of all of those things, and and we use the same words to describe this. I have actually come to see that as being a a kind of a limitation to the powerful and, and transformative power of God. But when I can find those ways to come alongside folks, I I really do feel a a deep sense of affirmation that my faith is able to come alive in ways that I I rarely experienced when I was just uh, sort of cavorting around with folks who all saw it all the same way that I did. You know, most of the Marines that I work with are not churchgoers. They don't have a strong religious identity. They don't speak in a religious language. But that doesn't necessarily have to be a limitation to the kind of conversation we can have. Oftentimes, the conversations that I have with these Marines have great moral and spiritual dimensionality to them, but they're not being spoken about uh, necessarily in those kind of words explicitly. And I've come to realize how much work can be done, good, important, spiritual, and moral work can be done in all kinds of vocabularies. And first and foremost, it's the vocabulary of me being who I am and sitting and being present and being in my body with them. It it starts even before we choose the words. It it, it begins in the ways that I show myself to be available, to be a listening presence, to be patient, and be willing to hear, you know, whatever it is that they may need to disclose over the course of that conversation. And that's a kind of language, as I say, that we have an opportunity to communicate even before words come into play. So, Zachary, was there a moment, like in the book of Samuel, you know, you hear a, call, a voice calling in the night, Wh- whom shall I send, is the song that is about that event. Did you wake up in the night and, <laughs> Zachary, how did you get from here to there? I'm still wondering. There's some great leap that I'm, I, I haven't seen yet. I would say for me, it actually took a number of awakening moments, a number of of what I sometimes call kind of my signposts along this vocational path, in large part because this was so out of my expectancy that it had to be really again and again put before me before I really was willing to surrender to it in that way. I'm hearing you giving me an opportunity to preach scripture a little bit, so I'll tell you the biblical story that means the most to me and and was one of those signposts for me. It's the story that can be found in the 10th chapter of the Acts of the Apostle, 
And what we have there is a story that really is about how Peter and Cornelius are able to come into relationship with each other. And for those who aren't familiar with the story, Cornelius is uh, a part of the Roman military. And, and Peter is this character that we see again and again through the New Testament, but you know, would have been one of the most visible leaders of the Jewish community and would have been at odds in many ways, both politically as well as religiously with people who were in the Roman military. And at the beginning of that story, Peter says to his friends that he's feeling hungry and he falls into a trance and he receives this vision. And in the vision, this giant picnic blanket descends from the heavens and it's filled with all kind of food, except the problem is that it's the wrong kind of food. And it's the wrong kind in a religious sense. It wouldn't have been kosher. It wouldn't have been religiously appropriate for Peter, given who he was, to eat this food, to be nourished by this meal. He lets God know that. He says, no, no, God, you've made a mistake. This isn't the right food for me. I'm hungry, but this isn't what I can eat. And God's response was really the, the response that continues to be a persistent guide for me in this work, which is God's response is, do not call unclean what I have made clean. What spoke to me so dynamically in those words was really for me needing to investigate places in my life where my religious beliefs and values had come to render certain ideas and, and even more so certain persons to be unclean, to be unworthy of relationship in a religious sense, that there could be folks who could be so wrong or so opposed to what I knew to be religiously true that I would not be in relationship with them. And for me, the folks who sort of most clearly demonstrated that were people in the military. And it's appropriate to that story and, and that for Peter, what happens for him after he wakes up from that trance, still a little bewildered by how sort of dissonant that is with his identity and his understanding, is that he has this opportunity to be in a really pretty transformative relationship with Cornelius. And Cornelius is is equally sort of surprised you know, by this opportunity, but God is able to do something through these two unexpected, could be friends, but otherwise would have been strangers, if not enemies to each other. And so I tried to allow that story to really read me, to really read who I was and where my location was and the ways in which my beliefs and values had come to render, as I say, some folks around me to be less than neighbors, to be strangers to me. So that was one of the signposts. You know, one of the other signposts was I had found my way to seminary, which was already a sort of unexpected and surprising thing for a Quaker kid to do, given our traditions. And this one day, the Navy chaplain recruiter walked in to the seminary, and he was dressed in his dress blues uniform. And I was pursuing then a, a Master of Divinity at Chicago Theological Seminary, which is a very progressive and politically very activist-oriented kind of seminary. And I was already discerning this call, but I was doing it very, very much in solitude because I wasn't finding a lot of people to kind of test this with. And there weren't other people at that time at CTS who were all that able to sort of think about that as being a ministry. When he walked in and I, I went up to him, and I kind of made the assumption that maybe he was lost. Maybe he had walked into the wrong building. <laughs> and, I, and I asked him something along those lines. You know, I said, I'm, I'm surprised to see you here, uh, you know, kind of given who we are and, and given, and I didn't probably say this out loud, but assuming who you are. And his response, again, just really kind of took me back to that kind of holy surprise. And his response was, I need to recruit at progressive theological schools because the graduates of these seminaries can care for the whole person. And that's what the military chaplain corps needs. 
I was so much occupied with this question of how could I fit in? How could I be able to do ministry that could have integrity in a context of the military that I thought would just be so kind of daunting to be able to do that work? And here was someone who had been empowered by the military to recruit for the military chaplain corps, for, in this case, for the Navy chaplain corps. And he was just answering that question for me so clearly that no, actually, the Navy Chaplain Corps needed somebody like me and needed me for just who I needed to be, which is uh, somebody who was going to try to faithfully care for everybody that I, I came in encounter with. So as I say, those were just a few of the kind of signposts that along the way for me kind of kept offering the suggestion, sometimes push, sometimes pull, saying, yeah, you're a Quaker kid and yeah, you're coming out of this as you said, liberal bastion of Berkeley, California, and and this wonderful community of pacifists. But maybe there's something that you can do here that will have some real power for it. I want to ask you more about that, Zachary. But first, I want to remind our listeners that you are listening right now to Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, for this Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. If I say it one more time, maybe you'll get it, northernspiritradio.org. On our website, you can find all kinds of links to our guests, so you'll find links to people like Zachary and his book on our website. You'll also find them for the last 10 years of all the programs I've done, interviewing people who are doing good work, peace and justice, environmental work, healing work of all sorts for the people and the planet. You'll also find on that site a place to post comments, and we welcome your comments. We love two-way communication. Also, there's a place where you can click to support. That is how we fund this full-time work that I do. You can click on that and make a donation online, or you can find our address and send us something. Even more important, though, I think, than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is supporting your local community radio station. They provide you a slice of music and of news that you get nowhere else on the American airwaves. It's something badly needed, a view that reflects that of the people. So please, start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, we have Zachary Moon with us here today. He's author of a recent book, just came out last month, Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families. All the more surprising because he is a Quaker like me, and we're both here at Western Carolina University, part of a nationwide Quaker gathering called Friends General Conference. Each summer we get together for about a week to share the spirit in many ways and forms. So Coming Home is the book, and I think we better get into some of the material of this, which really is about caring for the people who come back from being engaged in this kind of service Again, I imagine there's a whole number of listeners here who don't see it as service because it's serving the dark side or something like that. Let's talk kind of explicitly about how you've seen congregations or general populations in the United States reacting to soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq. What is the caricature and what's the reality of the kind of people who are coming back? I've seen for a number of mainline and, and certainly more kind of liberal or progressive congregations a real need to respond into the public square, you know, their need to resist and criticize and really show their support for an alternative to war, uh, particularly during this time. I've seen many congregations doing that well. 
And I understand that, again, that's very much born from their beliefs and their values. That would certainly be true for a number of Quaker churches and Quaker meetings, but other communities as well of other denominations. And certainly that kind of prophetic voice is very important, that we would have the kind of attention and asking some of these hard questions that I think that kind of activism really raises to our consciousness is very important. Unfortunately, what sometimes goes unseen really I would say is an unintended consequence of that kind of activism is that it may indicate to people with other beliefs and values that there actually is a kind of combative or antagonistic spirit to that, that they are being rendered as the other or the enemy on the other side of this political debate. And to the extent to which we sort of re-perform or reenact the kind of political binaries that American society so often does, with kind of soundbite after soundbite getting lobbed across to the other side, the ways in which you know many of our media outlets are really not helping equip us to do very thoughtful engagement with people of other opinions or persuasions, that really becomes, a, as I say, a, a real, I would say, a real tragic reality, particularly at a time like war where the human cost of war making is is just such a critical need for us as a society to be responding to that. I would say to you, Mark, that I carry a deep hope that religious communities of all kinds can exhibit and role model a different way of engaging than what we so often get in political venues or media venues. And what I hope that we can do there is really begin at a human level of these issues, that while we may have very strong and important political commitments, that we would recognize that we need to hold that in one hand and in the other hand really hold the opportunity to be in relationship with brothers and sisters who may see these issues differently and may have different proximity to what military service is about. I always encourage congregations to really begin the conversation within their own community, that regardless of of what denomination or political values a congregation may have, we may not be aware of even kind of who's in the room. That many congregations have veterans and have military families who are already present in those communities, and, and maybe that experience actually isn't visible to all of us. And so to have an opportunity to open that space for people to be able to share those experiences And I also encourage folks on a personal level to do the kind of self-reflexive work to think about their family of origin, even if they haven't served in the military. You know, so many of our families going back a generation or two generations, military service is a part of our family story. And that gives us an opportunity, again, to just kind of increase our awareness of the real impact that we experience at a human level because of our military endeavors abroad. And I think if we start there as a community and and as persons within a community, we're in a such better equipped place to really enter into relationship, as I say, across some of those created boundaries, you know, between civilian and veteran, between Democrats and Republicans, and and some of the places where we see the kind of us-them divide getting kind of parsed out. But we can't really do that until we do some of the homework to really think about who we are and what we bring to this. And so I always encourage communities to start there. I would say the next step, once you've been able to have that conversation, is actually through that conversation, what's able to happen next may actually become clear through that conversation. I really encourage community members to not jump immediately to a kind of program response. Oftentimes that tends to be our kind of default position where we see a problem and try to fix a problem through a program. And what I really see where we are the most efficient in terms of how the American society is responding to this transition home is that we're not taking seriously enough 
the need for authentic and trustworthy relationships. So rather than kind of running out and starting another program, to think about how we can equip ourselves to be in more dynamic and, and open, trustworthy relationships with one another. And we don't have to go far. As I say, there may be opportunities to do some of that relationship building work internally within our communities. And then we can just look you know, beyond the doors of our church or our meeting sanctuary to look at who else is doing this work, who else is interested in this. This can be a great opportunity for congregations to partner together and do this work. It's also an opportunity to partner with organizations or with the VA to provide in these kind of partnerships. The way that I've written this book, Mark, is is really intended to be at least one of the ways that it could be usable is as a group study kind of resource. And I really encourage communities to read the book together. It's certainly something that can be useful to an individual personal reader, but it's really designed and structured in a way that could also be very serviceable in that kind of way. The book is really meant to help energize and support these conversations taking place in our communities. But at this point, I am very clear that that to try to just offer a kind of prescriptive agenda for what all communities need to do, and and this is the program that we need, and I'm going to advocate for my program, my program, my program, you know, actually sort of works against what can be our most dynamic ministries here. I'm also aware, Zachary, that you must be writing about this because it's your perception that it's not being done already. Do we have clear indications that people are coming back from war and they're left orphaned, disconnected, not seen, not heard? Yes, we're seeing that. That evidence is very clear, I think, to anyone who is paying attention to kind of what's going on here. The need for this book actually really emerged from my work as a chaplain, where there were instances where I was having an opportunity to provide some support and care for a veteran, for a military family member, but might only have 15, 20 minutes, or maybe even less, with somebody, and I might never see them again. And I could appreciate that some of what we were working on there was going to need a lot more time and a lot more care than that. But the limitations of what my role was as a chaplain wasn't necessarily allowing for that. And so I immediately thought about the role that religious communities could really play in this. And I've come to believe that it's a unique role and it's just a vital role in how this can happen. The kinds of questions that are being asked sometimes in the sort of next chapter of life after the military sometimes have, as I say, a very explicit spiritual and moral dimension to them. And our religious communities are equipped in unique ways to help support that kind of discernment work. And I would say even larger than that, many of the service members who I've seen who have struggled in this transition have been asking maybe what we would understand to be vocational kind of questions. What can be my purpose going forward? How can I live a good life going forward? And part of that means needing to be able to process your military service experience and and all that that might entail. But it also is very much a a future-looking, a forward-looking kind of discernment process. And I think our religious communities, again, have a really unique opportunity to provide that kind of support. Quakers tend to think of themselves as being less oriented around outward sacramental practices or ritual practices, but the reality is is we actually do do a lot of religious practices that really could be claimed as being liturgies or rituals of it maybe a different kind. Those are all resources to think about. Our communities have these resources. There are resources for church communities within the biblical scriptures and other scriptures. And as I say, maybe even more important than those resources within our tradition are the resources that we are as persons ourselves. Our ability to be a listening presence and a patient and steadfast presence 
in relationship with these folks, being willing to sit and stick around in those conversations are such a gift in this process. One of the dynamics that I I see often is veterans telling a version of the story that goes along something like, I'm a veteran and I can only trust another veteran to be in relationship with. And oftentimes there's actually great pain within that story of feeling the grief of having tried to reach out to people who aren't veterans and not being received with generosity and with compassion. But then that story, actually the way that it ends up working out for people can be a real source of social isolation. As you may be aware, less than 1% of American citizens have served in uniform since September 11th, uh, 2001, uh, in this most kind of recent generation of war fighting abroad. And what that means is that there are very few folks to find. If you're telling yourself the story, well, I can only trust another veteran. And oftentimes there are real breakdowns between generations of veterans where a younger veteran might not see an older veteran as someone that they can talk to, that their experience of military service was different, or maybe they wouldn't be open to that. There's great work that has happened across those generations, but I have also seen some real limitations there. But if a veteran really continues to find evidence that they can only trust somebody else of their own generation who has served in the military and probably in the same branch of the military that they have, you can imagine how small the interpersonal world for that person is going to be going forward. And so when we think about just what happens for us as people when we're struggling or stressed out by the things that are going on in our life, the things that we're trying to process, if we can't find people around us in our lives that we can really share some of those burdens with, share some of those big questions and really do some of that kind of vocational discernment work going forward, it can be a severely socially isolating kind of experience. And it's actually there where I have seen in a number of cases, military service members, veterans, and also military family members just become so overwhelmed with the stress that they're carrying because they haven't found the adequate relationships to be able to share and and get the support that they need. And so I say always when I have an opportunity to talk with congregations, where there may be many civilians, if you can find a way to really be in meaningful, authentic, trustworthy relationships with a veteran, you could very well be saving their life just by being in a relationship with them. Because what you're indicating to them, what you're showing to them through that relationship is not only that you're trustworthy, but maybe other civilians could be trustworthy too. And that is such a powerful thing for a veteran to be able to recognize and experience. It totally disrupts that narrative around, I can only trust other veterans. And in that disruption, it totally opens up the interpersonal possibilities for folks going forward. And and that's something that is so desperately needed. I think I've seen the statistics, and they say that there have been more service members who, who left, veterans, therefore, who've committed suicide than have died during the wars. I think those numbers are accurate. Now, maybe this will lead to focusing on stuff like PTSD or moral injury or other things, whereas veterans come out with a whole range of issues. How much should we be concerned about the fact that they might actually kill themselves coming out? Is that something that should be foremost in our mind when we're befriending and companioning someone who's come out of the military? Mark, I think it's really necessary for us to think in deeper ways about the suicide numbers that that we are seeing very regularly through the media and, and otherwise. One of the things that's important to recognize there as we look at those numbers a little bit more deeply 
is that the way that those numbers break down, the number that is often a sort of put out in the headlines is that on a, on a typical day, 22 veterans are taking their own life. And that's a, it's an overwhelming number, really, when you think of it. But when you look at those numbers more deeply, 60% of those 22 veterans are not of this most recent generation. They're older veterans. And we're not talking, that's one of the, the sort of complexities to these numbers that we're not looking at. We're just sort of throwing around this 22 veterans, and we're just assuming, I think, that we're talking about younger veterans. There are different struggles that those older veterans are experiencing than what our younger veterans are. And if we're really, truly trying to respond to what is a very, I think, a, astounding a kind of piece of information when we think about those suicide rates, we have to be really clear that we know even who we're talking about there. I think the other piece, too, is then and also thinking in deeper ways about what's leading to that. I, I think the way in which we're narrating veteran suicide right now is very closely linked to post-traumatic stress and to this concept around moral injury, that there is a moral anguish that is being experienced by veterans that isn't being well cared for and that this leads to suicide. I appreciate that those are parts of the story that need to be told here. We need to think in real critical ways about what this struggle is. But as I say, it's so clear to me that the part that we are not fully addressing enough is actually a, a bigger question, and it does have to do with relationship. It has to do with the kind of interpersonal support that is either happening or not happening, and that that actually, to me, is the most critical element of this, that if veterans were being surrounded by the kinds of relationships that would really support them, not only processing what's happening and what's there in the rearview mirror, but also what's up front, what's there through the windshield, what's up ahead, and, and how do we navigate that? You know, the, the military is very intentional about preparing a recruit to go into the military and function at an adequate level in a high-stress environment. But the kind of high-stress environment that combat presents is not necessarily like the kind of high-stress environment that can be presented to you when you get back home. And at this point in time, our society is not providing the opportunities for military service members to do the kind of learning and, and have the kind of support and preparation that they need to make that transition. It's basically a kind of administrative process. Fill out some forms, you get your plane ticket and get home. And we're seeing, I think, some, some really valuable attempts that are happening to try to provide a little bit of programming around the edges to say, you know, here, here's a place you can come and decompress a little bit. Those opportunities are so needed, but it needs to happen in, at an institutional level. It needs to happen for all military service members. It can't just be something that you find some information about and sign up for case-by-case -case basis. We need to be providing those opportunities for all military service members for, among other reasons, not only because we we all need it, but because at the point of which you institutionalize it, what you're communicating is we all need this. This isn't optional. You know, we recognize that the context in which you were working and living as a part of your military service has got some real particular difference than what's going to be demanded of you when you get out of the military. Uh, there's different ways of relating to the people that you care about. There may be whole other ways of, of working a civilian job that have very little easy translatable you know, structures or language to, to how you worked in the military. And we need to provide folks an opportunity to do that. This is much more than just do veterans have jobs that are available to them? Are those jobs actually providing the kind of environment that will maximize their gifts and their values? Are those the kind of environments that are going to help folks to make that transition between a military identity and a post-military identity? Or is it just a job?
Because if it's just a job and it's not understanding those kind of larger identity relationship issues, it may actually not be a job that they end up being really engaged by, and it may not be a job that that they're able to sustain themselves in. I have to admit that I've been rather horrified of the stories I've heard of the undertreatment, the lack of support that Veterans Administration is able to give, underfunded and understaffed in just crucial ways. So I've been very concerned that given that we've hired people to go over and serve in this high-stress, dangerous situation, they come back, we don't take care of them. It's, it's been appalling to me. Can the VA system, or should it be able to help provide some part of this that communities, religious communities, others can't do, I guess, maybe? I'm, I'm worried about both parts of that, uh, you know, because people do come back having been exposed to depleted uranium. Uh, you know, back in Vietnam, we talked about Agent Orange and the effects of that. Is the non-support that veterans get when they get back is it rampant throughout our entire system? Yeah, I am very aware that the VA has really become the sort of target of the blame game around all of the failures that we have here. And I guess what I would just encourage you to ask yourself and allow the sort of absurdity of this to reveal itself to us is, you know, do you get all of your needs met at the hospital? Because that's essentially what we have asked of the VA. I mean, the VA is a hospital institution and it does some other things, you know, sort of around the periphery. But what it really, the, the culture of the institution is a hospital. Now, there may be some ways that it's not being a great hospital. And I think it's fair for us to be critical of that. I do not think it is fair for us to be critical of the VA not being able to fix all of the issues because none of us would have our issues all fixed with a trip to the hospital. And, and that's really the kind of assumption that we've made. You know, Mark, one of the examples that I, I talk about kind of later on in the book is an organization called The Mission Continues, which is now a national organization. And what they're doing in some ways is so, is so powerful in its simplicity. It's providing opportunities for veterans to work side by side doing community service kind of work. And the Mission Continues is not a religious organization. It's not based at a church. It's a veterans nonprofit organization. But there's absolutely no reason why congregations could not be providing those kinds of opportunities. And what this organization has so so marvelously done through this kind of work is that they've discovered that being oriented around the value of service and creating opportunities for veterans to continue to serve is within itself a healing and restorative process. The veterans with PTSD symptoms, that many of them actually experience a sense of relief and release and a decrease in the severity of their symptoms after a day of building a house side by side with somebody. I think one of the, the, the mistakes that we're making in the way that we're responding to the struggles of veterans coming home is that we're very oriented around talk-based therapies. We, you know, we think, you know, come here and talk about your problems. And the trouble with that is, a great deal of this is much more deeply embedded in the bodies of our veterans and our military families. You know, military training itself, there's very little talking that happens in military training. It is a deeply physical, embodied kind of training. But the way that we then seek to help folks transition out of a military culture and context is heavily oriented toward talk. When talk is actually one of the things that has been, I would say, sort of intentionally atrophied as a part of your military service. 
And I think, again, one of the things that is just so successful about what that organization, the Mission Continuous, has accomplished is they said, hey, we don't need to talk at all. We're just going to work side by side with each other, shoulder to shoulder. We're going to build this house together, and then we're going to enjoy uh, <laughs> some cold lemonade at the end of the day. And to realize that, that those kinds of experiences are having what we would think of maybe as being a therapeutic or a healing or a restorative kind of outcome to them, we need to pay attention to those examples, particularly when we're you know casting blame in the direction of the VA saying, why isn't the VA fixing this? Well, again, it's, it's not the VA's job to do all of that. And there's a great opportunity and there's some great examples out there, outside of the VA, out there in the community context of good work that's taking place. And some of the successes ought to be instructing us in terms of kind of how to expand this good work going forward. Again, the book we're talking about is Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families by Zachary Moon. We do have an audience here at the campus of Western Carolina University. We do have a question from a member of the audience about if there's a particular passage from the book, Coming Home, that would illustrate the kind of experiences that veterans have when returning home. Do you have something like that, Zachary? Yeah, so Mark, I'll I'll really just read the opening paragraphs of the book. I really think this is what the book is all about. And so I, I begin the book there by sharing this story. The unique and needed role of congregations in the reintegration process for veterans and military families was made clear to me early in my work as a chaplain. I was working at a VA hospital, and a young combat vet asked to talk. He was at the VA that day to see his primary care doctor, who recommended he see the psychiatrist for a screening for post-traumatic stress disorder. He began our conversation by saying, Chaplain, they're going to tell me I'm crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm just dealing with some things. I worked with many vets with PTSD diagnoses, and I could see that he was exhibiting many of the symptoms that substantiate that diagnosis. But I could also hear that he wanted to be seen as more than those symptoms, more than his suffering. He entrusted me with his story, and it changed the way I understood my work. He grew up with a church being the center of his life, a guiding and loving community that helped him grow into adulthood. He enlisted after graduating from high school and spent much of his deployment in Iraq serving as military police. Since returning from deployment, he was struggling to integrate his experiences in combat with the day-to-day life he found back home. And his wife and kids were trying to figure it out too, how to bring this member of their family back into a meaningful role and connected as a part in their lives after his absence. Because he had mentioned the importance of his church and his faith, as the conversation continued, I asked him what role his spirituality and church had in his life since his return from Iraq. He said his home church was the first place he went, bringing with him excitement and expectation. He had been separated, not only from his family, but also from this loving group of folks. He looked forward to being reunited. But as he sat in his spot in the pew and looked around at those folks who had known him his whole life and helped him become the man he was today, he did not experience relief. The combat experiences had changed him, not just in harmful ways, but in many significant and strengthening ways. In combat, he had been with a community of brothers and sisters who stood shoulder to shoulder in the worst circumstances who lived out the meaning of Jesus' teaching that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. 
He wanted church to be willing to practice what they preached. And what he witnessed when he returned to church was a bunch of nice folks sitting passively in the pews without much regard for those around them. He said that everyone was living in their own bubble. He said that he felt betrayed. I read that passage and start the book that way because I say I I feel accountable to the signposts that I've come across in in the journey of this ministry. And and that afternoon at the VA hospital when he shared that story with me, it, it just so closely brought into focus for me both the importance of this relationship for him, both with the individual persons within his church community and with the church itself, what it represented, what it could offer, and yet was struggling to offer. It also suggested to me that our congregations have things to learn and things to gain from this relationship, that when we conceive of relationships built with veterans or military families as being some form of charity or helping folks who are under a lot of duress, I think we're really missing the point. What we're really talking about is a real relationship that's mutually beneficial, that involves learning and growing and transforming on both sides of the relationship. And to me, I I just heard him so clearly longing for that. And it was a longing that resonated in my heart as well. And in many ways set me on the path for, for what became this book. It is a path that we need to get on collectively in this nation to be part of the healing of people who have served in our military, who've not served in the military, of course, too. We, we see some folks, but we see other people as caricatures, and you do such a good job of taking us beyond those false images we have and bringing us back to connection with real people. I so appreciate your willingness to follow the signposts where they lead you, even though it's difficult and challenging for you. I can't imagine a better place for a Quaker to be placed. And the the person who came to Chicago Theological Seminary and said, you know, we need progressives who are going to be there to care for the whole person. I see that you do that, and I'm so thankful for that work and for teaching some of us more about how to do that through your book, Coming Home. Thank you so much, Zachary. It's great to be here with you. Thanks so much, Mark. And again, we've been with Zachary Moon, the book, Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families. We've got a few bonus excerpts that we couldn't fit in this broadcast. You'll find them at northernspiritradio.org. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.